It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. So wonderful world. There's a zillion people dug that tune the way I did it when I felt it. Because, uh, it's so much in wonderful world that brings me back to my neighborhood where I live in Corona, uh, New York. Of course, Long Island, uh, everybody know where that is. And Lucille and I, ever since we married, we've been right there in that block. And everybody keeps their little homes up like we do. And it's just like one big family. I saw three generations come up in that block. And they're all with their children, grandchildren. They come back to see Uncle Sachmo and Aunt Lucille. That's why I can say, I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I'm looking at all them kids' face. And I got pictures of them when they was five, six, seven years old. And it is a wonderful world. Today, our guest is Ricky Riccardi. He is the Director of Research Collections for the Louis Armstrong House Museum, which is located in the Corona neighborhood of Queens in New York. And today, we have the honor and the privilege of speaking to Ricky about this incredible house, the tribute that it pays to the one, the only, Louis Armstrong, and it is truly a pleasure, Ricky, to have you with us here on All That's Jazz. Thank you, Alan. The, the pleasure is all mine. So I would like to begin discussing a little bit about the, the house itself. Now, it's located in Queens in the uh, Corona neighborhood of New York. And this was actually his residence, but yet it's a museum as well. Indeed, this is the home where Louis Armstrong lived for the last 28 years of his life. Uh, he moved in with his wife, Lucia. Lucia was actually responsible for everything. She married Lewis in October 1942, and their honeymoon was about five, six straight months of one-nighters. And Lucia said, this is not what I signed up for. So she had spent part of her childhood in Corona and uh, found out that the home at 3456 107th Street was for sale, put down the down payment, moved in, moved her mother in, all without telling Lewis. And eventually, because he was on tour, he was touring 300 days a year at this point. And so eventually Lewis comes back to New York and she gives him the address. About six o'clock in the morning, he calls. His train had just come in. And he says, I'm at the station. How will I get out there? He says, you just take a taxi. Every cab driver knows how to get out to Queens and Corona. So he said, okay, mom. So now I want you to fix breakfast. I, and he told me what he wanted. It only takes a half hour by car to where I live from New York. And at six o'clock in the morning, it'd take a little less. But an hour passed, an hour and 45 minutes. And I'm worried to death. And then finally I look out the window and Louis sitting out, he's getting out of the 
cab. I don't know how long he'd been out standing out there, but he and the cab driver were standing across the street from the house. And uh, Louis' arms were on his hips, and he's looking up at the house. And you know how Louis used to sway from side to side all the time? And he's swaying from side to side looking up at the house. And all these beautiful pearly teeth all showing. And I opened the window and I said, Wouldn't you come? Why don't you come on in this house? How long have you been standing out there? So uh, he came in and he brought the cab driver with him. So I asked him, I said, How, Why are you so late? He said, the cab driver got lost. Of all the cab drivers, in the way, he gets one that doesn't know how to get to Corona, doesn't never heard of it, and they're riding around for hours. So he tells the cab driver, he said, man, you better come into this pad. He said, see, this is the first time I'm seeing it, so we might as well inspect it together. You know, so they went, I gave him a cook's tour through the house, and he made the cab driver have uh, uh, breakfast with him. But I've never been able to move Louis from that place. Once he got in that place, he loved it. And once he found it, and once he moved in, uh, he refused to leave. I mean, he had enough money, he could have lived anywhere. Uh, and Lucille, she would occasionally get the itch to maybe move to something a little bigger, a little grander. But he just loved that home. He loved that neighborhood. And after he died in 71, Lucille was completely dedicated to his legacy, had the home declared a National Historic Landmark. And um, she passed away suddenly in 1983. But after 20 years of hard work and the efforts of the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation and Queens College and you know, the, the late Michael Cogswell and many, many, many other folks uh, we opened up as a historic house museum in October 2003, 18 years ago this week. It's really funny that when you think of a museum for someone that is a tribute to that person, their legacy, and all the work that they accomplished through their life, you think of this large edifice, and yet this is not the case. Uh, the museum is also within the context of that home that house that they lived in. It really is. I mean, if you drove past it and didn't see the sign that said Louis Armstrong House Museum, um, it looks like your typical kind of Archie Bunker, working class Queens home. And Corona is just one of those neighborhoods that's, that's never been gentrified. It's always been working class people. And so everything looks like it's kind of frozen in time. And so when you visit the museum, some people come, they might not even be big jazz fans. They just want to see a perfectly preserved home from the 1950s and 60s. And so to see the furniture and the wallpaper, uh, one of our most common things that we hear is people feel like Lewis and Lucille just stepped out for lunch for maybe an hour and you're getting to walk around and, you know, you see the cigarette stains and you, you, you just feel their presence, uh, even though they've been gone. Lewis has been gone 50 years now, but the house really keeps them alive. And I would assume that any of the visitors that do have that opportunity to see it are certainly not disappointed. And like you say, they're, they're, they're getting a good feel for the, the man, his wife, and his home, uh, rather than going into some large building uh, that's all lit and looks uh, very modernistic uh, and has paintings and photos on the walls. Instead, this is the actual house. Right. Yeah, this is not like a presidential library or, or anything like that. This is home. And uh, one of our longtime employees, Highland Harris, he likes to say that the tour actually begins on the subway. Because let's face it, Corona Queens, it's not exactly Times Square. And so once you make that decision, I'm going to visit the Louis Armstrong house. Well, 
you're going to be riding the seven train. You're going to be seeing, you know, all the different working class people on the seven train. Then you're going to work, walk through the neighborhood, walk past the churches and the local restaurants and the barber shops, and you know, like I said, the, everything's changed over the years in some ways. You know, when when Lewis moved in, it was primarily an Irish, Italian, and African American neighborhood. Then when he died, it was pretty much a middle class African American neighborhood. Now it's more of a Dominican bordering on Asian neighborhood, but the actual jobs, the actual look, the feel, the sights, the sounds of Corona, uh, it's the same as it was when he was there. So you're already kind of walking in, in his shoes when you make that decision to travel to the museum. And then you get there and you walk in, and like I said, you see how it was decorated. You go to his den and you realize that's where he made these reel-to-reel tapes, and that's where he hung out with Dizzy Gillespie and Clark Terry and all the Bobby Hackett, all the great jazz musicians who lived in Queens, and uh, I've seen adults uh, break into tears. And one of the things that really, one of the highlights of the tour is we have all of this audio from Louis Armstrong's reel-to-reel tapes, where Armstrong got his first tape player in 1950, and we have over 700 tapes in our archives that he made in the last 21 years of his life. And when you take a tour of the Armstrong house, the docent will be telling stories and showing photos, and all of a sudden they reach over, and they hit a button, and you hear Louis Armstrong's voice in that room. At home in Cronin, Long Island, New York, February 26, 1956. February 6. Correction. February 6. 1926. And that's when people really start to feel that this is more than just, like you said, walking through, you know, your kind of typical museum and looking at artwork and stuff like that. No, no, you are hearing them, feeling them, and it's just like they're still here with us. I'm sure it's an amazing experience to be able to actually visit and take it all in and so forth. What was your, by the way, what was your first impression of the house when you first saw it? Oh, I first saw it as a visitor, like like most folks. And uh, for me, it was it was make, making the pilgrimage because a quick bit of background, you know, I'm, I'm 41 years old. And when I was 15, Armstrong's music hit me between the eyes and completely turned me upside down. And so I knew that I knew that one day I wanted to write a book on him, and I knew I wanted to listen to everything and learn everything there was. And I went to Rutgers, and I got a master's in jazz history and research, and I wrote a 350-page master's thesis on Armstrong's later years. And so I graduated in 05, and you know I had already met Dan Morgenstern and George Avakian and people who knew Lewis, and I had done all this research, but I hadn't been to Queens yet. So January 2006, my wife and I made the trip. And like I said, you know, we took the seven train, we took a local bus, we got turned around because when you go to Queens, there's 34th Street and 34th Avenue and 34th Road. And, you know, you're trying to figure it out. And we finally made it. And I'll never forget hearing some of those clips in those rooms. And I I had never done any research with the tapes up to that point and hearing the sound of him practicing.
standing there in that den gave me the chills. And as I walked out and through the gift shop, the longtime director, Michael Cogswell, was there. And I introduced myself and um, left. And I told my wife, I said, I need to work here one day. I don't know how, but it's, it's got to happen. And um, that day we ended up actually going over to the archives afterwards at Queens College. And little did I know, but three years later, I'd be in charge of those archives. And it's been a 12-year dream ever since. But I, I've never gotten tired of it. Anytime I'm needed at the house or you know, anytime I'm at the archives and I pull the trumpets out of the safe or anything like that, it has not lost any of that magic. I can guarantee you that. So how did you end up getting that job? Was it you that pursued the job or did the job pursue you? It was a combination because that was January 06, the first time I took the tour of the house and visited the archives. And so I had this master's thesis where the thesis was that Louis Armstrong remained a genius into his 40s and 50s and 60s. And then, you know, if you say that nowadays, most people say, you know, big deal. But at the time, you know, the, the running narrative on Armstrong was he was a genius in the 20s with the hot fives and the hot sevens and all that groundbreaking music. But when he got older, he became commercial and a showman and an entertainer and kind of wasted his talent. And I never bought that. So I wanted to prove that. And so now I had a thesis and I would interview these people and I made that first trip to the archives and I start listening to Lewis's tapes. And the first tape I listened to was an interview in 1956. And he is defending himself, talking about how he's playing trumpet better than ever before. And he's talking about his band, how great they are. And he's talking about the album Ambassador Satch, which is one of my favorites. The red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along, along. There'll be no more sobbing when he starts dropping his old sweet song. Wake up, wake up, you sleepyhead. Get up, get up, get out of bed. Cheer up, cheer up, the sun is red. Live, love, laugh and be happy. What if I've been blue? Now I'm walking through fields of flowers. Rain may glisten, still I'll listen for hours and hours. And I knew it. I said, oh my goodness. I said, you know, I, I knew I was on to something with my thesis, but now I had Lewis backing me up. And so between 2006 and 2009, I became kind of a regular at the Armstrong Archives, making appointments whenever I could, meeting the staff, listening to tapes. But the thing that really kind of pushed it forward, I should mention my day job in this whole period was I was a house painter. <laughs> My father runs a, a painting, he's a painting contractor in Toms River, New Jersey. And that was always my summer job going back to high school. And so here I am with a master's degree and I got married a month later. And I said, oh, I'll go help the old man out and, and paint for a little bit. And I ended up painting full time for four years. And after about two years, my family, my wife, they were all kind of giving me the look like, you know, is this, is this it? <laughs> is this what you're doing with your big jazz history degree? And so in 2007, this is right before the big social media explosion, I decided to start a blog. And so in the summer of 2007, I started dippermouth.blogspot.com, the wonderful world of Louis Armstrong. And this was the height of the iPod, pre-iPhone days, pre-streaming days. And I would sit there painting houses all day, listening to Louis Armstrong, and I would hear things and make connections, and I would run home and write a blog about it. And here's every version of Indiana. Listen to how he changes his solos. I would analyze set lists. I would analyze recordings. And for the first six months or so, nobody 
knew I was out there. But all of a sudden, by 2008, I had people writing to me. I had people in Europe, Armstrong fans, sending me recordings and sending me never-before-heard stuff. I began interviewing the musicians who played in Armstrong's band. And then um, 2008 was also the year that I, I had a book deal. Yeah, I made a deal to publish my first book with Pantheon, What a Wonderful World. And uh, that was my first trip to Satchmo Summerfest in New Orleans to present an Armstrong. And I'm still painting houses. I'm now a, <laughs> I'm now a house painter with a book deal, giving lectures on weekends, but I'm still painting houses. And it was 2009 that Michael Cogswell and the staff of the Armstrong House got a grant uh, to hire a project archivist to be in charge of the Jack Bradley collection. They had just acquired the world's largest private collection of Armstrong memorabilia belonging to Lewis's close friend, Jack Bradley. And uh, they wanted an archivist. And Michael told me in New Orleans, you should apply for this. And I said, oh, okay. And, you know, full disclosure, I had no archival training. But I said, what else am I really qualified to do? And so I, <laughs> I applied for the job. And, um, you know, they, they gave me the same questions that everybody else. Half the interview was you know, tell me about Louis Armstrong in the 1920s and what are your favorite Louis Armstrong tracks? But the other half were all archival questions. You know, what are the pitfalls of retrospective conversion and all this stuff? And I was doing my Ralph Cramden, you know, <laughs> you know, just trying to just trying to get through it. But they, they brought me in for the interview and, and Jack Bradley was known for taking photos of Lewis. And so during the in-person interview, they showed me a contact sheet and they said, all right, here's, here's one of Jack Bradley's contact sheets. And like a robot, I looked at it and I said, oh, that's a Mercury recording session from the fall of 64. And they all looked at it and there was no words on it. They're like, well, how do you know? And I said, well, that's Big Chief Moore on trombone and Eddie Shue on clarinet. And that version of Armstrong's band was only together for six months. And in those six months, they made only two recording sessions, both for Mercury. And that's clearly a recording date. So that would be one of the Mercury sessions. And they all looked at each other and about two hours later called me and said, you got the job. And, and that was that was 12 years ago this week. There's something about October. Uh, it's a big anniversary month in, in the Lewis Arm, the annals of Lewis Armstrong. Lewis and Lucille were married in October, October 12th. And the house opened October 15th. And I started working, I think it was October 13th or 14th. So, yeah, there's something about this time. But that's my story. <laughs> well, it's a great story, and it, it, I, I think they made obviously the right choice. Uh, would you consider yourself the quintessential expert on Louis Armstrong and all things connected? People say that, and I appreciate it. I, I, I can't go around, I can't be the one to say it, I'll put it that way. Especially, you know, I, I worship Dan Morgenstern, who is still alive and well, about to turn 92 later this month. And uh, Dan knew Lewis, and Dan's won Grammys for writing about Lewis, and Dan is the real deal. So as long as people like that are still alive, I can't go around saying I'm the world's expert. But I, I mean, I'm proud that, you know, I think the only two people who have listened to all 700-plus tapes in Lewis Armstrong's collection are Lewis Armstrong and me. <laughs> and so I have devoted... 26 of my 41 years to studying this man and his music and learning and just trying, you know, and I'm, I'm not at a point where I feel like, oh, I've got it all. You know, I'm still discovering stuff all the time. So it's a it's a lifelong journey. So what is it about this man that attracted you to him and his work and obviously manifested itself into this position you now hold as the research collection director. 
I mean, for me, the, the, the simple answer is joy. I think that's what a lot of people get out of Louis Armstrong. And when I was 15, like, and this is mid-90s, you know, Italian kid living on the Jersey Shore, I didn't understand kind of the baggage that was surrounding Louis Armstrong. You know, there was the accusations of Uncle Tom, and as I mentioned before, commercialism and all that stuff. I just, I saw the movie, The Glenn Miller Story, and he came out, and the voice, the smile, the trumpet tone, everything about it. I was just like, this guy is the greatest entertainer in the world. And I have that personality where when I love something, I need to learn everything there is about it. And then I need to tell everybody that I know about it. Like, you know, back then it was just my parents. You know, now it would be my parents, my wife, my kids. And once, once, you know, now it's social media. It's just like, you need to hear this song. This is life-changing. This is incredible. And so when I kept bumping into this criticism of Armstrong and that he was a spent force by 1929, that kind of lit the flames. Yeah, this that's when I knew that this was going to be more than just one of my phases, you know, where I would go through a phase, Muhammad Ali. I, I had all these phases where I would get into something and just go down the rabbit hole. Two years into my Armstrong phase, because my journey, uh, Lawrence Bergreen put out a, a very good book called Louis Armstrong and Extravagant Life. And Bergreen spent 424 pages on Armstrong up to 1943. And then he spent 70 pages on the last 28 years of Armstrong's life. And that, and again, I'm still in high school, but that was the big light bulb moment that people are not paying attention to the second half of this man's life. And I think I now know what I need to do. And so that that's how it kind of began and that, you know, I needed to tell the story. But it was the tapes that really brought it to the next level. Because hearing the tapes, hearing what Armstrong left behind, because we have multiple tapes where he says he was doing this for posterity. That's my story, folks. I guess I'm stuck with it. I usually say nice things also about human beings if they deserve it. I never want to be any more than I am. And what I don't have, I don't need it any who. I've always loved and I always lived a normal life, which I appreciate very much. And I've always loved everybody, still do. So don't let anybody tell you otherwise. When he was making these reel-to-reel tapes and writing autobiographical manuscripts and everything that's kind of the backbone of the archives, he was doing it knowing that there would be a future generation that would be interested in him. And they would want to see how he lived and how he felt about things and would study from him. And there was so much wrong-headed stuff written during his lifetime that I think he figured at some point, I'm going to control my own narrative. And so listening to each one of those tapes and getting to know his archives so intimately, that's when it became this kind of thing of, well, it's no longer about me. You know, I am now the messenger. <laughs> I am now the delivery boy to get his words out. So, you know, my day job is one thing and God bless it. And I love every minute of it, but I have published now two books on Armstrong and uh, both of those books are heavy, heavy, heavy on Lewis's words because I want him to have a, a chance to explain himself. And, you know, all the stuff that people complained about, the movies he was making, the recordings he was making, and how he felt about race and how he felt about the trumpet, he gives you all the answers on those tapes. And so now, you know, like I said, it's become like a, a personal mission. You know, I don't need any glory. I don't need any awards. I don't need anybody to even know my name. You know, I just want to make sure people remember Lewis for what he wanted to be remembered for. 
So are, are you feeling that the mission for you then is to right the wrongs, so to speak? Because there were some controversial aspects of, of the man, of his life, his career. And, you know, even to today, there are still some people that are purists or uh, critical of him uh, in one way or another. And in, in a way, it, it is unfair because... Uh, like it or not, he became one of the most well-known people in the world. Everybody knows Louis Armstrong. And that goes to this day. I mean, yeah, how many people are born in 1901? Is there this much attention where there's a museum and there's a, the world's largest archives for any single jazz musician and we're opening up the new Armstrong Center and imagine an Apple, they're doing a documentary on Armstrong and there's whispers of biopics on Armstrong and, you know, there's just no end in sight and more books coming out on him and this and that. And it's just like, who else in that era? And, and you know, all the geniuses of, of early jazz, Duke Ellington, Sidney Bechet, you name it. They're starting to fade, you know, not to us and not to the people listening to this podcast. I'm sure we, we hold them up. You know, I think Ellington will also have a pretty lasting impact, obviously. But there's something about Lewis. You know, you go to Spotify, nine, ten million plays a month. And, you know, he's the soundtrack of every commercial. And you know, right now, as we're speaking, you know, he's closing the new James Bond film with his recording of We Have All the Time in the World. So so he's not going anywhere, but it took a long time to get here. And I think that's. Yeah, and a lot of damage was done. I, I don't think anybody would deny that. When he died in 71, it was headline news, breaking news, and there was a lot of beautiful tributes, but there was also a lot, including one in the New York Times, of kind of cautionary tales. Like, don't let this happen to you. Louis Armstrong died a smiling, grinning clown with a white audience, and he made that choice, and, you know, he, we must remember that and not do it again. And that followed him around... To the point where in 1983, when James Lincoln Collier writes his book, Louis Armstrong, an American Genius, I mean, his whole thesis was never has an artist in America uh, so failed his own talent. And it's one of the most mean-spirited books ever written. But I knew that book, and I knew Dan Morgenstern wrote an incredible takedown of that book. But it wasn't until I began reading the reviews, the New York Times review and other major reviews, when that book came out, most of the critics said, yep. Sounds about right. You know, that's the Louis Armstrong we know. And so for me, that all changes. Just a few years later, Lucille Armstrong dies that same year, 83. And the house is given to the city of New York. And the city of New York and the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation choose Queens College to administer everything. And the first person they give access to everything in the house is Gary Giddens. And so Gary Giddens is the first person to go through and read Lewis's letters, read his autobiographical manuscripts, spend some time with the tapes. What does he do? He puts out Satchmo, a book that all of a sudden people start paying attention. Like, wait a minute, Louis Armstrong was greater than we thought. That's followed by a documentary. That's followed by Winton. Winton starts talking about Lewis nonstop. Winton does an entire week at Jazz Lincoln Center, uh, the Armstrong Continuum, I think it was called, 1994. Five. The Smithsonian does a traveling exhibit of Armstrong stuff between 94 and 96. Ken Burns makes Armstrong the star in, in 2000. So where I'm coming in, you know, I'm the latest in, in a long trend. I always want to make clear I'm not saying that I, Ricky Riccardi, am the one who, who got people to pay attention. This had been going on for a while. And to me, I, I do pin it to letting Armstrong speak for himself. Once Gary Giddens and folks, Ken Burns and all, were able to access the archives and access the materials we have, 
all of a sudden Armstrong's scholarship started to change and views of Armstrong started to change. And I talk about this with the staff of the Armstrong House. You know, I mentioned Highland Harris before. I've been there 12 years. Highland's been there almost 11 years. And people used to come to the museum in 2011, 2012, and still say, gee, you know, I always thought he was an Uncle Tom, or I thought this, or I never really paid attention. And those people are fewer and farther between now. So I do think Armstrong, his reputation has been, you could say, almost salvaged in some circles. You know, people talk about Little Rock. They talk about, um, you know, him putting his career on the line to speak out against injustice. And so to, to lead off a conversation, sometimes I give lectures and I get very defensive in the beginning. You know, Lewis was not an Uncle Tom. Or Lewis, you know, was a great trumpet player. Mm-hmm. And Lewis was this. And people look at me like, yeah, yeah, we <laughs> we agree, man. Calm down. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's working. You know, people people are coming around. And so um, there's work to be done. Like something I'm, I'm deeply invested in is teaching, especially uh, jazz education programs. I still think Lewis was given the short shrift many years ago. I think a lot of the, the early jazz educators thought that he was kind of a commercial grinning clown, whatever. And they knew that West End blues and potato head blues was kind of like the spinach of jazz. You needed to learn it. You needed to you know, take it. But they didn't go much further. And so I teach a course now at Queens College, Music of Louis Armstrong. I teach for Jazz at Lincoln Center. I give guest lectures. And I'm usually in a room full of jazz musicians, touring jazz musicians, professional jazz musicians, musicians who are just going back to get their master's degree. And I ask them, how many of you really checked out Louis Armstrong? And I don't think more than two people have ever raised their hand. And so then I, I roll up my sleeves and I go to work. And um, especially the Queens College class. I mean, God bless you know, Antonio Hart, who runs the program there. He, you know, he's made it a mandatory class now. And after 15 weeks and given equal weight to the Hot Fives with Armstrong's big band, with his all-stars, with What a Wonderful World. You know, you have to listen to the whole thing and the context of where jazz was and what it meant to be an African-American entertainer and the showman and this and that. By the end, you know, I ask them to write response papers, and the responses are always, why wasn't I, I taught this earlier? You know, <laughs> why was I given a Charlie Parker Omni book but never taught about Louis Armstrong? And so there's still a lot of work to be done and I, I've never met a musician who studied Louis Armstrong and came out, you know, thinking it was a waste of time. So there, there's still still more work to be done, and I'm just glad to be doing it. So as director of research collections, if that's the correct title, uh, is there still more research that needs to be done or is still underway? Yeah, I mean... On a personal note, you know, I, I've written two books about Armstrong, and now I'm writing the third one. So it's taken me three books to to finish his story, and that that'll be out probably 2025. I, I I still need some time. I haven't written a word of it yet, but so I'm doing research. So I'll have one more, you know, one more part to to close my my version of the story. But folks are still checking everything out. One of the blessings in the is the Armstrong House got a 2.7 million dollar grant from Robert F. Smith's Fund to Foundation five years ago to digitize the entire archives. And so all those research collections, we have, we have about 12 separate collections. It's the world's largest archives for any single jazz musician. They're all digitized. And you can go online to collections.lewisarmstronghouse.org. You can create an account, which is free. And whether you're in New York or California or Sweden or Italy or wherever you are, you can basically see everything that's in the archives. You can listen to tapes, 
you can read magazine articles, you can go through Lewis's letters and fan mail and see photos, and everything's watermarked and, you know, protected for copyright reasons, but for research purposes, it was really a game changer, because before that, people would have to come to Queens. And so that, I think, is going to, you know, we, we have professors who contact us who are making all their students create accounts and do research using the archives. And so I still think, because I know I'm biased, <laughs> but I do think Armstrong is like the quintessential figure of the 20th century. Because, you know, jazz folks, sometimes we just get wrapped up on the trumpet playing and the innovations, and that's great, of course. But, you know, there's the whole story. There's New Orleans at the turn of the century. There's Armstrong in Harlem. There's Armstrong on Central Avenue. Armstrong in Chicago. There's relationships with King Oliver. There's the women in his life, the strong women in his life. His mother, Mayam. His second wife, Lil, who was the architect of his career. His fourth wife, Lucille, who set up his legacy. There's the recordings, of course, but there's also film and media, TV, radio. You know, Armstrong breaking down barriers for his race. Armstrong speaking out for civil rights. You know, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and so when you add it all up, somebody who's born in 1901 and makes his first recordings acoustically, you know, playing into a horn. And then, you know, right before he dies, he's you know, covering Give Peace a Chance in stereo with an, you know, Oliver Nelson orchestra. It's just, you know, it's just like, what more do you need? You know, somebody who saw all these changes. He used to play cornet trumpet for uh, silent movies. Then he's in Hello, Dolly with Barbara Streisand. And so anybody could take any of these avenues. Oh, and then there's the stuff in the archives, like his collages, which people did not know about when he was alive, that Armstrong's hobby offstage was to make collages, to cut out photographs and newspaper clippings. And those collages, they're in a coffee table book by Stephen Brower. They've been exhibited in New Orleans. They were part of that Smithsonian traveling exhibit. And so it's like pick a slice. You want to analyze the trumpet playing, the singing, the scatting, the film work, the media work, the TV work. Um, you want to talk about race. You want to talk about New Orleans. He's a lifetime study. And it's taken me three books to finish his his life and even those you should see my cutting room floor <laughs> the stuff that i was not able to include so that's a long way of saying there's a lot more research that can be done into this man's life and legacy so when visitors come to the uh, lewis armstrong house are they going to get a good feel for the man uh, you know obviously he's the legend he's well known worldwide etc but uh, do you see the part of the man who is like all of us? He puts his pants on one leg at a time kind of thing? That's one of the big takeaways of the tour of the Armstrong House Museum, is you realize what a regular guy he was. As much fame and money he had, I mean, he can go to the Congo and stop a civil war and go to Italy and shake hands with the Pope, and he could do all this stuff. And then when it was time to come home, he chose this working class neighborhood and this working class home, you know, little TVs and you know, because all that stuff is still on display when, when you take the tour of the museum. And Lucille, you know, she had more of a flair to her. She would hire an interior decorator, Morris Grossberg, and you know, some there's some pretty ornate features inside the house, you know, the bathroom which has got gold plated fixtures and mirrors from floor to ceiling, and there's a blue kitchen that's everybody's favorite room because it looks like the Jetsons kind of kitchen from the future. So you all you also see them knowing that they have money and they're and they're gonna they're gonna spend it and live with the um, top line stuff. But there's so much that just exudes humanity. And of course, when you take the tour, the docents tell stories of Lewis 
in the house, Lewis with the kids on the block, Lewis inviting the kids inside, eating ice cream together, playing the trumpet for them, watching westerns on TV. You hear these stories of him in the den answering fan mail and all that kind of stuff. And so that's the big goal of the tour. We kind of assume that folks who make that trip, you know, if they're real jazz fans, they probably know the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. If they're casual, they probably know What a Wonderful World, Lavi and Rose, Hello Dolly. But after that 40-minute tour, you're going to realize that this was a great, great man. I'd, I'd love to actually do a, another episode with you at some point just about the man himself and his career. I mean, there's so much, uh, as you obviously well know, but in the meantime, how can people learn more about the Louis Armstrong House Museum? So our website is louisarmstronghouse.org. And if you go there, uh, like I said, you can book a tour in advance, but you can also see what's going on, news and events. You can sign up for our e-blasts and newsletters. You can become a member. You can donate. You can do pretty much anything at louisarmstronghouse.org. We also have a pretty healthy social media presence, which is another one of the hats that I wear, which is great because I get to you know, see the the calendar, be like, oh, you know, on this date, Lewis recorded with Fletcher Henderson. Oh, here's a photo of Lewis with Fletcher Henderson. And boom, yeah, it goes up on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter, and, and people respond to that. So check us out there. And uh, as I mentioned, the virtual exhibit site is virtualexhibits.lewisarmstronghouse.org. And if you just want to explore those archives, collections.lewisarmstronghouse.org. And uh, on all those sites, you know, as Fats Waller would say, the, the joint is jumping. So. And then I guess the, the last question would be, since uh, you have this in your background and when it may call for it in the future, do you suppose you would be the painter to do any uh, refurbishing? <laughs> it's a running gag at the Armstrong House. Uh, my painting days, I've, I've officially retired, but, but it does come up from time to time. Like we, we were doing some work and we had to cut a hole in the ceiling and it's like, oh, you know, get Ricky, he'll... <laughs> Yeah, you'll you know, patch it and put a coat on, and and I, I could I could always come out of retirement, but uh, I, I think I've got enough stuff on my plate. So I, I I will tell you this has been fascinating and a wonderful opportunity to speak with you about you and your passion, devotion, and commitment to Louis Armstrong, and to talk about the legacy living on through the uh, Louis Armstrong House Museum, but also through the research and the collections that have been assembled to pay attention and pay respect to this wonderful, beautiful man called Louis Armstrong. Amen. Like I said, there's, there's more work to be done. On that note, Ricky Riccardi, I'd like to say thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz today. What a distinct pleasure. Oh, I had, I had a ball, Alan. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you. It was great, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Ricky Riccardi, the Director of Research Collections for the Louis Armstrong House Museum. We'd like to thank Ben Cedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook 
and online at allthatsjazz.net.